Luke 1, in our church today, we started the story of the life and death of John the baptizer. And this is the beginning of that story. And it really is, uh, to me, an incredible story of, of grace. Uh, and, and grace, you know, it, it's, that's that hallmark of what Christianity is. And yet, if uh, you try to describe it, it's sort of hard to do in a word or a phrase. And now Luke opens the story of Jesus Christ and this, this most important understanding, grace. And I think after he does all his study, he says, and to figure this out and to get it in a certain order, he says, I'll tell you what grace is. And he says, let me tell you a story. And so as you hear this, as we connect with Zechariah and Elizabeth tonight, uh, think about your story, or your story as well as a story of grace, of God's kindness and salvation coming undeserved to change your life for the better. And that may be a touchstone as you talk to a friend, a family member, a neighbor who just wrestles with God and life with God, and you're trying to give them help. Well, let me tell you my story of God's grace. Well, from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse number 5 through verse 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. All right, here's a question. What do an iPod, a remote, diet pills, phone caller ID, and a wedding registry say about us? Got some thoughts? I think they say this. In these small ways and others... We manage life on our own terms, my ways, my preferences. I don't have to listen to any song I don't like anymore. I can change the channel as soon as it's not what I want. I can take a pill to change my appearance. I can decide who I want to talk to. And I can even control what gifts you give me, my way. My preferences. We never say it, of course, like that, but we feel it. I want to be able to shape my life on my terms, and we think that's good. Life and even God a la carte can go along the buffet line of my days and seasons, and I can choose this, I like this, oh, I don't like that, I can skip over that, and I can sort of manage my life and get the life that I want. And these props make me ask about other ways that I try to control my life. This great temptation, right? This assumption that the good life is a self-directed one. Maybe it's not an iPod or a remote for you, but what is it? And this gives you what you think is a measure of control. And I can make life just the way it's supposed to be according to what I think. And am I tempted to believe that even faith and prayer are about me, a way to get the life that I want? Then how do I live when I'm forced to carry or face what I didn't choose? what I don't really want. When life goes bad, does that mean I'm a failure? 
When I'm not happy, does that mean life is not worth it? That God is not worth it? The story of John the baptizer begins asking us to consider that perhaps we've got it all wrong. Could it be that real life, that really living happens when things don't go my way? That the Lord God has a better way and a better glory for my life, my life lived for him. And could that be a grace that we don't think of when we think of God's grace? When life doesn't work out as planned, is there something I can do for God? And what would that be? And so we are introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we feel for them. You are not going to meet any nicer, upright people. He is a priest. She's from the line of Aaron, that first and great priest of Israel. And if you look closely at how Luke writes the story, you are meant to see how much they resemble Abraham and Sarah, the mother and father of Israel. And Elkanah and Hannah as well, the parents of the prophet Samuel. They compare favorably to the best there ever was. Elizabeth has the same name as Aaron's wife had. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah are upright in the sight of God, Luke describes them, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. There's nobody in this room as good as they were. And they're poster children for life not working out as planned. Together, they're barren. It's not what they wanted. How they figured life would go for them. And in their culture, to be barren brought with it the notion of judgment Even today, we know that those who wish to have children and can't suffer silently, our hearts and prayers go out to them, and we're sorry when we make things worse by trying to say things that give them advice or help fix their problem instead of offering prayer, support, and a sympathetic ear. And if we still have trouble with this today, imagine in Zechariah and Elizabeth's time. Did they judge that they were not this good after all? Nobody would ever say it to them, but they didn't have to. They would feel it. They would assume it about themselves. You know how that goes. What's wrong many times turns to what's wrong with me. If these good people don't feel like they measure up, What am I to feel? If these upright people consider their lives barren, having no future, do any of us have a future? 
And if these good people can't depend on their goodness to get to God, where does that leave us? So Luke sketches this for us to bring this all up, to show us that these assumptions won't cut it. That God is out and about and doing something much greater if we will only see it. Because if we think this is how we're going to relate to God, we're going to miss what the Lord is doing, just like Zechariah almost missed it. Look at him. He's in the religion business. He knows the law. He reads the scriptures. He knows about God and angels. He believes God and angels are real. He should be thrilled at the sight of an angel. Imagine, Pastor Greg comes to church, he's ready to preach, and an angel shows up. That would be great. That would be in the paper. Do you know what happened at Faith Church? An angel was there. People would come from miles around to see what was going on. So now in our story, he's doing the right things, the religious things, and an angel appears, and let's read verse 12. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was overjoyed at the presence of God and felt relieved. Right? No, it doesn't say that here. Look at verse 12. It says, when Zechariah saw the angel, he was gripped with fear. How come? If anyone should be overjoyed at the presence of God, you'd think it'd be Zechariah. So how come he's afraid? He assumes God's presence is not a good thing. He figures he can't stand before God. A good man like that, a man doing God's work, and he's afraid of judgment. Where does that leave us? <laughs> We'd be afraid too. How come? For the same reason that Elizabeth felt she was a disgrace for not having children. For the same reason Adam and Eve hid themselves from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. For the same reason that Peter responded the first time he met Jesus by saying, get away from me, because I'm a sinful man. Because our human nature has been broken by sin, we fear God. We don't trust grace. A National Geographic show interviewed an animal rescuer and she said, when an animal has been wounded or abandoned, do you know what it will do to the first person who tries to rescue it? It will try to bite or scratch or claw that person. It will act out of fear. That's human beings with God. Wounded before the great physician, selfish before the self-sacrificing one, unholy before the holy, our first reaction is one of fear. And this is important for us to realize. That's why people dismiss Jesus. That's why Christians are judged. We have to remember this because people are broken and they need rescue. And their first reaction is going to be one of fear. People need grace and that's the last thing they want to trust. So, 
we have to be ready. We have to be ready to anticipate that and respond graciously to them. Because that's what God does here. Look at it. Isn't it amazing then, God's words to us? It's an amazing grace. Gabriel's first words to Zechariah, the words that God told him to say, and these are God's first words to each one of us. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Mary and Joseph will hear these same words as our gracious God invites them to do something for Jesus. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob heard those words too. So did leaders like Moses and Joshua, kings like David and Jehoshaphat, people in prayer and in exile, Israel in time of mission and when found out in sin. Jesus himself spoke these very words to you and me. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Trust in me. We live in a season of great fear. Everything that goes wrong these days takes on the dread of terror, feeds our suspicion that God is out to get us after all, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Do not be afraid. Those are God's words to you today. So will you stop and receive those words? As if God was saying to them, to you right now, where you are, in your situation, God is there and says, don't be afraid. What is the Spirit saying to you as you hear that? And I would say that's a conversation to have with someone after church. To share with someone else. You know, God said to me, don't be afraid. And I think what the Spirit is telling me is, and now that's your story of grace to share. This is what Luke is saying. Only the coming of Jesus into our lives can save us. It's not religion that saves Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's not getting what they want that fixes their life. It's not their doing good that changes things. It's God. God breaks in to their lives because of who God is, not because of who they are or what they've done. Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And they're going to have a son, but not for themselves, but to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And what does the Bible say? Not because they're being rewarded, not because they're most fit for this task at hand, The child is coming at a time when it's impossible for them to have one. They are old and barren and judging themselves. Despite all that, they're chosen. Chosen for this mission of God. That's grace. John is the one who will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And you know what his name means? I know this because it's my name, so you have to know what that is, right? But John means God is gracious. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth, old, I don't know how old they, I don't know what old meant in the Bible, if that meant 40 or, you know, or if that meant 80, I don't know. 
but they were old, the Bible says. So imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth, they have this little toddler. You know, they're trying to keep up with the toddler, running around, pulling stuff out. And they're going, John, John, Johnny. And every time they're saying that, they're not saying John, they're saying God is gracious. God is gracious. God is gracious. So as the Bible tells the story of God coming to redeem broken creation, the best way to describe salvation is with words like favor, kindness, grace. The first thing we learn about Jesus, what his coming means for the world, is grace. What is it? Philip Yancey says the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge. No strings attached. It seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma and getting what you deserve, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. We could add the Mormon principles and covenants. Um, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity and the Bible dare to make God's love unconditional. And Elizabeth understands, verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. God replaces fear with favor. I mean, I can imagine Elizabeth and Zechariah crying in the night. What do we have to do to be accepted, to find peace, to feel assured of where we stand before God? And then as the seasons pass, starting to wonder, is this all there is? Is this what life is always going to be about? And always having no way, no answer in themselves to give. And their story is here because it's our story. It is recorded for us in all our tears. And every time we come away picking out those slivers and barbs of not being good enough, not doing enough, all that striving, but they could never find salvation. All that striving, but they lived with judgment. All that striving... But it's God alone who brought new life. The Lord has done this for me. Not, I finally got what I deserve. Not, I finally figured out the right way. The Lord has done this for me. He's got a wonderful purpose for you and me that has nothing to do with how others size you up or dependent on you getting what you want. You are God's workmanship. Sometimes that means letting go of cherished dreams for holier purposes. Sometimes that <clears throat> means being pulled from peace so God can give you a taste of glory, but always undeserved and not your efforts. The Bible stories tell us that God continually breaks into the lives of people 
because he wants to. Undeserved. His kindness and favor. Good people and bad people. Teenagers and grandparents. Poor and rich. Saint and sinner. None get to God on their own, but to to each God brings the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is God's work. That's what grace means. God's free gift, not human effort. Titus says it plainly, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Who saves? God saves, not you. You can't save yourself. Why does God save? Because that's his character. Not because of righteous things we had done. So the Bible teaches this grace. That means there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And nothing you can do to make God love you less. You are loved by God. Romans 5 Verse 6, Christ died for the religious. Does it say that? No. Does it say Christ died for the self-righteous? No, that's not in there. Does it say that Christ died for the nice guy? Uh Uh-uh. It says Christ died for the ungodly. We need God to come to us free of charge. And that's the only way he can come. We aren't able to make it happen. Well, what's our response? If God loves me that much and so favorably breaks into my life with true wholeness, the best thing that I can do is stop trying to control and measure my life by my wants and my powers, my uh, limitations and my regrets. I must be open to his future and see that even in my weakness there, right there in that season, is an opportunity for his strength. That's what verse 17 points us towards. Verse 17, the angel says that John will come to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The words of the angel had been spoken before by God in Malachi. They were the last words of the Old Testament. But this time God highlights the future of his grace. In Malachi, he promised to send one who would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He speaks of restoring family and belonging for a people torn apart and exiled from God. But here, Gabriel speaks only half the sentence. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And that's not normally how it's done, is it? Our world is an adult world. It's always the case, right? Even kids know that. You can hardly wait when you're a kid till you're 10. And then you're a teenager. You want to grow up. And when is my 16th birthday? And I'm going to be 18 and 21, and I'm going to be on my own. I want to be an adult. Until we start to figure it out that when it's an adult world, then things kind of settle and get stuck and set. 
and we fear that, that haunting thought, is this how it's going to be? Is this all there is? Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change in Washington or in Springfield or in my office or in my home. And that's what happens when life is on my terms, my way, my powers, because they're not so powerful. So read again these surprising words of God and hear the promise of his future. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. It's a radical promise. God is saying there's a new future that you can't account for and you can't control. Not even Herod is aware of or being able to speak about or run because it's God's future. Jesus, the child of the Father, will bring the favor and redemption and rescue and rule of God. Did you hear, Elizabeth? In these days, he has shown his favor. In these days, in her days of barrenness and their age and limitations, in a time when people were under Herod, far from God, stuck and not hearing anything divine. And in these days of ours, grace means a new future, God's future, beyond my limited resources and regrets, more than I deserve. So this calls for you and me to have that radical of a faith, to turn over control, to give it up for reliance on God. What might that look like? I think we do that when we accept someone, even though we don't like how they behave or live. But we accept them as a neighbor or friend or even a family member. We accept. We've turned over control to God. Or when we forgive. Or when we just do something for another, knowing full well they can never even respond in a thankful way. We serve another. We sacrifice. That's all a trust to God. We've explored our condition through this story. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we yearn for what this broken world cannot give. But so does your neighbor. So does the one you pray for who seems ungodly. But God has determined to come in his saving, gracious favor. Not because anyone deserves it, but because God is gracious. Could that be the reason Zechariah's speech is taken away until the child is born, until grace is proved true. For until then, Zechariah has nothing more to say. Remember, he's a priest. He's supposed to speak for the people to God, and he's supposed to speak for God to the people. But religious words won't save only God. Now, this is not to say our worship and devotion don't matter. Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful, and so were prepared by the Spirit to receive this grace of the Lord. The angel met Zechariah in church, after all, right, in worship. But the good news is God's favor, not our accomplishment. The Lord's acceptance of Zechariah and Elizabeth 
was given though people questioned their circumstances. So how do you define grace? It's as if the angel says, Zechariah, when you have have experienced it, then you'll have something to say. And if someone asks you this week, what's Christianity really all about? Grace, you should answer. And if they ask you, well, what's grace? You should say, let me tell you a story. As we close, I'd like to leave us with one question to act on. Since Jesus means that grace is what now gives life and shape to me, let me ask, what relationship or what responsibility or role that we have, that you have, in which one of those circumstances is the Spirit calling me to act graciously? Not out of fear, not out of control, not trying to fix the situation, not out of anger or judgment, all those ways we usually react. But this time, this week, I will be gracious. And perhaps a new future from God will be revealed. That's how John's story started. And that's how our stories continue. Amen.